0: To Rupture Radio. It's Dermot here, bringing you a very interesting discussion with socialist, economist, and activist Brian O'Boyle. Brian makes his second appearance on the podcast to discuss his and Kieran Allen's new book, Tax Haven Ireland. We discuss the nature of tax havens, how Ireland became one, and what the cost is to working people at home and abroad. Much, much more is covered in the book, which I would highly recommend listeners to pick up. I've left a link to an email you can get the book from in the episode description. Once again, I'd like to thank people for tuning in and to say that if you have any interest in supporting the podcast, you can get in touch to help us out with its production or consider making a donation on Patreon. A link to this can be found below. Alright, I'm delighted to be joined once again on the podcast by socialist activist and economist Brian O'Boyle. Thanks for joining me, Brian.
1: You're very welcome. Thanks very much for having me.
0: So today we're going to be discussing your great book Tax Haven Ireland, which came out late last year. And I guess to, to start off with the basics, you might just go into what role tax havens play in modern capitalist economies and how the need for tax havens developed in the first place.
1: Yeah, look, the book, what it tries to do, I suppose, is two things around tax. So the first thing is it's deliberately provocative in its title. So we've called it Tax Haven Ireland because so few mainstream economists really take up that question and, and pose it in the way we want to. So we're very clear that Ireland is a tax haven. We're on the same side as a whole series of tax justice networks um, of many academics and of the likes of Senate reports and the European Council Commission, should I say, sorry, report. So, There's a whole sort of consensus now has emerged that Ireland is a tax haven. And we wanted to say that. But the other point which brings me to your question is that it's also important for listeners not to get sort of too fixated on the word tax, because what we want to explain in the book is the political economy of tax havens. And what I mean by that is, is that tax havens, although they predate neoliberalism, in many ways, what they are, is the perfect partner for neoliberalism. Because if you think of neoliberal capitalism as sort of capitalism on steroids, the idea that the state has to be stripped back, that every state decision is made in the interests of competitiveness, of increasing the power of corporations over the rest of society, will tax havens play an absolutely central role in that? So narrowly, the answer would be The role of tax havens is, I would say, at least threefold. One thing they do is they increase the secrecy for the ruling class. Uh, You know, you're talking here about trillions of offshore assets, which because they're offshore, it means that they're out of um, sight of regulators. And more importantly, they're out of sight of voters. They're not just it's just not clear how much wealth there is available. And so that's one thing. The second thing is they really emphasize the role of um, deregulation, what tax havens give owners of capital is an excuse. They give people the excuse to say, listen, if you don't cut your taxes, we're leaving. And we always get this argument in Ireland. You know, we would say it's obscene that, you know, one in five children regularly goes to school hungry. We should tax wealth in order to stop that from being the case. And when you say that, what happens is you're told, ah, no, you can't put extra taxes on big business on multi-billion dollar companies, because if you do, they will leave. Well, where will they leave? They will leave to go to tax havens. So the idea of a tax haven is part of that idea that, that capital is footloose and fancy free. Now, obviously, it, in, you know, you could debate how footloose it actually is, but you can't debate the fact that what tax havens give capital is an out. It gives them the idea that they can go somewhere else. And then the third one is obviously tax itself. And so you know, it gives hundreds of billions and maybe trillions of euros and dollars in Europe alone every year. It's estimated to be worth about $4 trillion worth of uh, unpaid you know taxes on an annual basis the various tax havens in the world and all that money becomes a war chest for rich people to manipulate democracy to undermine democracy to make sure that it operates in their interests so tax havens are absolutely central to capitalism they have become more prominent in the era of neoliberalism they they influence they underpin and they support neoliberalism and so it's important to see them in that larger political economy and i think that's what we try to do
0: yeah, and I, I think it, it is traced very well in the book how they came through the development of capitalism internationally and how they are a necessity now. I think the mainstream narrative is often that by some ingenuity in the 70s and 80s, the Irish economy kind of pulled a fast one and now we are doing very well, drawing in multinational companies and, and have found a bit of like a golden goose in that way. But in the book, you follow development of the southern Irish economy from economic protectionism to free market industrial development towards the current tax haven model. It would be good just to outline how did this occur and how did the Southern Irish economy transition into being a tax haven?
1: So what I would say is, again, you can answer that in a more long-winded or a a snappier way. So in in one sense, what we argue is, if you want to trace the, the ultimate genesis of this, it's the nature of the state that was developed in independence. You know, the socialist tradition insists that the Irish state was born in a counter-revolution, that the aspirations of hundreds of thousands of people in the country who rose up against imperialism were not met. You know, what we ended up with was a very conservative state. We know the implication of that in terms of mother and baby homes, industrial schools, inequality, and all the rest of it. But in terms of economic policy, what happens is, as you say, there's a few decades where there's a genuine disagreement between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Fine Gael are pursuing political stability and therefore they're pursuing economic liberalism, which means keep exports flowing into Britain, keep the economic relationships as they were before the status quo is really protected economically that allows for Fianna Fáil to argue that we need change and as you say the change that they argue for is protectionism and a kind of a what they call economic nationalism uh, that strategy runs aground in the 1950s and there's sort of a, i think there's a coming together then of Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, uh senior you know ministers across the various governments and then Chief civil servants—we're becoming more clear on the role of civil servants, aren't we? At the moment, with this guy uh, Robert Watt and so on. So we know that there are what they call mandarins in the, you know, in the various departments. And and there's a consensus emerged that what they need to do is move towards uh, international capital, bringing in foreign direct investment, and trying to pin the Irish economy to the most uh, advanced international companies. And that that sort of consensus that starts to develop in the fifties. And what we say in the book is that look. You know, there's hopes at the time that this is going to be a nirvana. That what's going to happen is, you know, the the most optimistic scenario would have been foreign companies come in, they make very deep links with Irish companies, they drag those Irish companies into competitiveness and into a higher level of technology excuse me technological capacity, and the Irish economy moves forward. Uh, the most sort of pessimistic scenario would be the foreign direct investment happens, the companies come in, and they undermine the competitors of their rivals in the Irish economy. They undermine those companies and are and the and the two-track economy. And in some ways a bit of both happens actually. Um, you know, on its own merits, the foreign direct investment is incredibly successful in the first 15 years. Uh, we quote Cormac O'Grada, who's a well known um Economic historian, and he makes the point, uh, you know, and it's it's the right point that look, there was this fundamental transformation in many sectors of the Irish economy through foreign direct investment, but. You know, in terms of the actual economic impact, on the one hand, there's very little linkages made with the number with the Irish sectors, and actually, if anything, manufacturing and industry are probably outcompeted in ways and put backwards by foreign direct investment. But the areas that are really sort of springboarded forward are uh, finance, banking, land, construction an accountancy and so all the areas that service the foreign direct investment and begin the long process of building a tax haven are sort of feather bedded by this process of enormous investment coming in just to make it very concrete if an enormous company comes in and makes a multi-million investment well then first of all they're going to need new legal advice they're going to need accountants right secondly they're going to need a premises if they're at that stage it was primarily about bringing in industrial companies for exports you're going to need a greenfield Site, you're going to need builders, you're going to need. So, all that stuff had to happen. And so, it did happen. And it gave the Irish uh, elites a sort of a, a leg up, if you want. And so, what we argue in the book is, is that what happens over time is that this creates a form of cronyist and corrupt capitalism in Ireland, whereby, on the one hand, the elites become more and more attuned to giving very big advantages to foreign capitalists. Doff your cap say nothing, give them freebies and crucially use the state and its sovereignty over tax to give breaks to foreign capitalists. On the other hand, to make sure that the Irish capitalists are not sort of outcompeted and that they get their share of the modernising economy, you have this cronyist and corrupt form of domestic capitalism where they get state contracts, the inside track, they're given all sorts of advantages. The most obvious one would be something like, you know, at one stage in the 1960s, 50% of all all customers for building projects in Dublin where's the government. So of course, like how can you lose? You know, you get a contract off the state, you go off and build something, and then you put in a you you put in a state actor like a Department of Finance or Department of Housing into your building on a 30 year lease. It's you know foolproof. So that's the thing we, we argue. And then by the 1980s, you see, you have a very corrupted Irish capitalism. Uh, the figurehead is obviously Charles Haughey. We know that he, they like to sort of see him as one bad apple. But obviously our argument is uh, one bad apple doesn't make a barrel. The barrel was rotten. And the reason the barrel was rotten is even if you think about it, who gave Hockey all his money? If he got 180 times his annual salary in bribes, who gave it to him? And the answer is hundreds of people did, and they were also all corrupt. And so the whole establishment was corrupt. And then in the 1980s, as neoliberalism is getting started... Uh, There's a whole flurry of activity that says, listen, what we need to do in Ireland now, we know we have our existing links with American foreign direct investment. We know we've signaled that we have a corrupted and a captured state. But now what we've got to do is get the infrastructure in place to actually drive a major new departure. And that is going to be the International Financial Services Centre. And that gets established by um, linking the IFSC To the city of London in the context of the city of London becoming a neoliberal centre. So as we say, again, it's about the political economy of the thing. Um, uh, Margaret Thatcher's government wins a very important battle against the miners. That's the sort of sharp end of the class struggle in Britain. And from that, the springboard for British capitalism is to make it more financial. This involves trying to give the city of London a comparative advantage against the rest of capitalism, uh, you know, the argument being that herself and Ronald Reagan saw that if capitalism became more international, more financialized, um, well, then they having the most advanced capitalist um, you know, city sort of infrastructures would be the ones that would benefit the most. Ireland is the sort of piggy- Ireland piggybacks on the back of that. So, you know, uh, Thatcher deregulates 1986 the IFSC is established in 1987. So it's one year later. And really, I would say that's the narrow answer to your question. You know, where did the tax saving come from? It comes from that process. It comes from that process, followed up by a sort of a very aggressive process by the IDA to sell Ireland, And I I think one of the things that, you know, the book will explain is that the IFSC is one of the centers of of the Irish tax haven, but you can't just see it as the only center because what happens is, you know, big financial companies come in, but so do big uh, non-financial corporations, but then they have their financial operations in the IFSC, if you see what I mean. So that's the start of the whole thing. And from there on, it sort of develops um, as neoliberalism develops, it sort of develops in lockstep with it, I would say.
0: Yeah, and you note in the book that even in the IFSC, there's a like a whopping amount of companies registered in that building, but not a uh, not operating to any any substantial degree. Uh, I think it's traced very well how Ireland followed the same transition that we see in, in Britain towards facilitating finance capital uh, and becoming a hub for that. Obviously not to the same degree but it is uh, still on a large scale. In, in the book you trace the, the kind of vast web of interconnections between legal firms the Irish Financial Services Centre government bodies the international firms and it's really a, a deep dive into the whole system of, of all the big players. Uh, it, it's obviously tough to cover uh, that in brief but to give a sense of it, what's, what shape does the apparatus of the Irish tax haven take today?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And as you say, it's not the easiest one to to, to make a very quick um, uh, response to. But what I would say is, look... If you think about it, the one way to think about it will be to say, right, if you were the owner of a multinational, you know what they call sometimes situational analysis, put yourself in the position of someone who might be thinking, where will I make a big investment, you know? So you're looking across the water at Ireland, you're from America. Well, first thing you won't have is local knowledge, right? So you're gonna to have to pay for that. So what happens is there are basically, we, we see it as there are sort of a division of labor in the IFSA, right? So there are three broad categories of company that do the facilitating for these big multinational firms, right? So they're obviously going to do it for a fee, and that's their 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 part of the of the tax haven. But so, what would you need? Well, the first thing you might need, as you say, you might need some company directors. Uh, you might need people on the ground, effectively, who know the law, who know sort of how to operate, who know what the loopholes look like, but also who have what we might call soft diplomacy skills. They're in the old boys network. They know who to pick up the phone and ring if you have a problem. And uh, they know, you know, where is the best place to establish an industry, for example. And um, how do you link into Brussels? You know, all of this stuff is stuff that is, is knowable, but they probably don't know immediately. So in order to facilitate that, you get... Uh, you know as i say three sets of companies one is the big legal firms right so you've got these big legal firms that are you know we're, we're used to talking about sort of legal in terms of maybe criminal law but there's a whole infrastructure of what's called corporate law and corporate law firms make it their business to understand the law for corporations to understand exactly what kind of um Deals are available through the state, how you link that state to the international environment, how you then link it down to various pieces of legislation in the country. And so the legal firms are extremely important in the whole picture, you know, and there are probably seven or eight of them. There's one called William Fry. Uh, Good Bodies would be another one. And, you know, and these are kind of not as well known maybe as the next group I'm going to talk about, but they'd be well known in in these circles. You know, Matheson is another one. And they'd have hundreds of, of very well paid, very intelligent people who understand Ireland, both in a formal sense and in an informal sense. And that's really important, as I say, because, you know. The, the network is important. You can have all the money you want, but you need to plug into something that's there already, something that exists, right? The second thing, of course, is you need that formal sense of what's available. So what are the tools that are available for tax uh, avoidance in that particular jurisdiction? So obviously, then the accountancy firms come into play. And it's easier to sort of talk about them insofar as um, historically what has happened is there's a virtual monopoly uh, by the Big Four, so there are four enormous corporations, and if you Google them or if you Wikipedia them, you'll see that they they collectively between them, and I'll, I'll name them in a second. They audit the accounts of 99% of the world's major corporations. So basically, they have a, a you know a total monopoly here. So this is companies. Uh, this is PwC, Price Waterhouse Cooper. This is uh, um, Ernst and Young. Uh, is is the second one then you have Deloitte which is actually the biggest and then you have PMJ and those four like you know you're talking here about turnover of about somewhere between 30 and 40 billion per annum like it's just vast these are vast 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 companies and so you need to plug into the local they work almost on a model a bit like McDonald's in the sense that you know you take up the franchise and you go local with that franchise so of course a company of that scale doesn't sort of organise itself just as a traditional company might what happens is you get uh, the brand you get the KPMG brand and then you bring it into Ireland and then you build your network in Ireland and so that's the second big set of companies and then there are What are called corporate services companies, right? And they do almost everything else. So, as you said a minute ago, uh, there are premises uh, in the Irish. Uh, and sorry in the International Financial Services Centre along Sir John Rogerson's quay where officially you know you'd look at a building and that building might house 400 uh, the, the, you know the headquarters of 400 companies now clearly what they are as are, are known in the business as brass plate operations whereby what they are is a legal front for a company to allow it to do all sorts of things you know some of them are avoiding taxes others are taking advantage of legal um, you know privileges and all the rest Actually, there are other benefits you see, because again, as I said, if I try to audit you and you have one premises, one accountant, you know, one set of sales, that's pretty straightforward. If I try and audit you and you have five thousand companies, shell companies, shells within shells, shells within shells within shells, it's much more difficult for me to audit what's going on. And so, by splitting companies up into various, you know, vast amounts of different uh, companies in in you know different jurisdictions, it really adds to the complexity of of the system. And that actually adds to the advantages of the companies that are trying to, you know, effectively stay as much as they can under the radar. Right. So that's the that's what that's the that's a network. Right. And within that network, then it links to, a, you know, the state through Initially, it was a group called the Clearing House Group. And I really want to emphasize that because the Irish state, every state is lobbied by financial interests. You know, I think I read somewhere that there's a lobby of something like 30,000 full-time lobbyists in Brussels. There are only something like six or 7,000 civil servants in Brussels. So you have like, you know, five or six lobbyists for every uh, official. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that they are the ones who know what's going on, not the citizens of of the various countries. And so you get this capture in it in a general sense, but in Ireland it went so far that it actually they embedded a sort of a corporate lobby group called the Clearing House Group. They often use names that are sort of neutral, so you, you don't really know what it's about. And this Clearing House Group effectively cleared any opposition to the tax haven out of the way. That's what it did. And so it, you know, it had it, it was made up of revenue. Uh, commissioners it was made up of you know people from the American Chamber of Commerce but it was situated within the Department of the Taoiseach so people can Google it and um, and they can look for minutes and you'll see who uh, who participate. Now, often you won't get all the you know the detailed discussion. Some of it will be redacted, but it's there if you go and have a look. So I would encourage your readers to go and have a look for the Clearinghouse group. And as you say, I think that's what you were looking for me to sort of get to. The, the fundamental point I'm making is that there's this very well established corporate network, which is quite complex, but it links in a very unique way to the Irish state. And that's why, you know, Ireland is a, is a captured state And it's very important to underline that point. So I think that's the basics of it. The final, final part then would obviously be the kind of, you know, the companies that would come in that wouldn't be your traditional financial companies, the likes of your Apple or your, you know, the big pharma companies, the likes of Pfizer and so on. They would then think, well, how then are we going to operate in the Irish state? Well, one of our functions will be to operate uh, genuine uh, facilities that would look to export into Europe. But of course, we're not going to turn our face away from all these tax advantages as well. So you get this kind of dual idea of we'll come in, we'll bring investment in, but we'll also look for advantages through your tax system. So therefore, you get people who are linked to the international capitalist class uh, also partaking in the Irish tax haven. So that's roughly... Uh, as best as I can, I give you a thumbnail sketch.
0: Yeah, and I think it's it's kind of astounding, the proximity that's laid out in the book between the state and these companies, that the meetings, the immense amount of meetings that, that have taken place. And it might have been compared in the book to the amount of meetings with trade unions and something, and it's a fraction of that. And you touched on there in terms of the, the empty shell companies that operate here in Over the last couple of weeks, I've been reading up on figures and facts from the amount of like American companies based in Ireland and to what degree any of them are of any size. And there's something like 800 companies in Ireland. But what you'll often find is they're just sister groups of American companies that have very little actual life here, but operate, as you said, to to filter through intellectual property or anything like that. And that's touched on uh, in the book, the different vehicles that are used for the assets to be hidden away and, and just that degree of separation to be made between the company and its money that's flowing through the country. Another thing that's touched on the book is the true nature of a lot of the supposed initiatives to dismantle the tax haven. We'd often hear pressure would come onto the state, either from America or the EU, or some scandal might break out in the country. And then there'll be a round of coverage and we'll hear that the Irish state is tackling the issue and has closed all the loopholes. However, as you explain, it's rarely the case that any real action is taken. And the question then is like, what is behind the state intransigence here? And are we likely to see any change to the model in the short to medium term?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, the term I use is plausible deniability. You know, people often wonder why would governments that are officially set to take tax from these companies, why would they allow them to be tax avoiders? You know, because in a certain sense, it's if you think about it, the state is losing the money. And this is where a socialist or a Marxist analysis is very useful, because a Marxist analysis will will, will argue that there's a there's a complex set of relationships between corporate and state actors. Um, And in a way, you know, the corporate sector has its own interests and the state has its own interests, but actually they're partners. And so take a country like uh, Germany, you know, in the literature, it's widely seen or it's widely, you know, believed that Germany as a state would generally lose a bit towards the likes of Ireland or, say, Switzerland or the UK um, or, or Holland, you know, known tax havens through the kind of machinations of the tax haven system. But you've got to remember that, that you know, BMW or Mercedes or Audi or whatever the big car German car companies they likely benefit from the process you know in other words that there is for every German state that's not doing so well big German companies may well be doing well from it so you've got to think of it that way and so you know you might wonder well how does a country of only five million people get away with this because there are clearly far bigger more powerful states we've just seen the whole the uh, battle around the Irish uh, Navy and 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 the Russians, we know, we all know that uh, you know the Irish Navy is not actually there to defend the state uh, from outside influence. It's probably there to defend the state from working class people. But look, the point is, is that um, you know, in the end, the Irish tax haven is one node or one central point in an international system, and that international system has the imprimatur or the support of American big business, right? So that's really important. And you'll see that, for example, if you look, you know, this comes across in little glimpses of, of the kind of official narrative. So, for example, you're told that we're very reliant on American companies because just 10 companies pay half of our tax. Now, that should be a signal. that You, you should be thinking that like, the way that's presented to the, to the population is, oh, aren't we so lucky to have these companies? You know, shouldn't we do everything we in our power to give them as many advantages as, as possible because we're very reliant on them. But you could think of it a different way. Why then are 170,000 companies only paying half the tax? That's one question you could ask. But the other question you could ask is, well, what are these 10 companies getting out of this? You know, is it plausible that these 10 companies are just, you know, paying their way and they happen to be very successful? Or would it be more likely that what's happening is they've set themselves up in Ireland because what they're doing is they're bringing an awful lot of money from the rest of the world through Ireland. And by doing that, they pay a small fee to the Irish state, which turns out to be half the tax take. That's the argument we make. And, you know, it's not the argument. We're not alone in making that argument. It's been well documented by, as I say, you know, the Brazilian government has labelled Ireland A tax haven, uh, a European Commission report has more or less done the same thing. Uh, We know that the Senate committee in America that looked into Apple's affairs basically labelled Ireland a tax deviant. So the point there is that that's what happens, right? Your question is, what do they do when they get caught? Now, of course, if it's about plausible deniability, at some point some of the mechanisms you're using you can't deny them anymore. So what you've got to do is you've got to pivot, you've got to change your 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 offering. And the classic example here is the is the double Irish, right? So uh, we trace in the book the double Irish back to a decision made in America when the American government effectively decided that capitalists who were producing across the world could divide their operations into American and non-American. So you have two ways of, you know, classifying your operation and if you were an American operation you continued to pay 35% tax but if you were a non-American operation you could pay the local rates now the local rate in Ireland was 10% so therefore you could get away with 25% tax and so this gave an incentive to American businesses to sort of hive off parts of their operation under the sort of um, the promise that they wouldn't bring those the rest of the profits back into America that was the kind of quid pro quo that they wouldn't that they wouldn't do they keep it offshore effectively now in the literature it looks like up to a trillion dollars were sheltered through the double Irish. And it's it's actually well known to have been, if not the most successful, certainly one of the most successful tax avoidance mechanisms ever devised. Okay. Now, the problem is though, at some point it becomes it gets rumbled. And it, it, in this particular instance, it gets rumbled because the European Commission fined against Apple. And so what the Irish government are doing all along is they are preparing the way to shift to a new model. So what happens is in 2015, the inside track is that the Apple case is gonna be lost, okay? That's what they they, they knew. And so Apple Incorporated, it moves uh, a lot of their intellectual property out of traditional tax havens, probably in the Caribbean, and they move it into Ireland. And so it's almost like a reverse process. In the double Irish, profits flowed into Ireland, They were momentarily in the Irish tax take, but then they always bounced back out again. Some people talk about it as a trampoline, sort of tax haven, because Ireland was like a trampoline. The profits flowed to Ireland, they bounced over into, into Bermuda or Barbados. Now it's the other way around. The intellectual property is produced in Barbados, but it's shipped into Ireland. And so now the tax deduction actually happens in the Irish state, right? And that, you know, allows them to get rid of the double Irish to some extent, although there is arguments that there's things like the single malt, which basically reproduces the double Irish in a different Mm way. Uh, But the point is, is that for all intents and purposes, it's probably true that the double Irish has been wound down to some extent, right? That's probably true. But what hasn't been wound down is this new one. And in fact, it's been ramped up and it's called the Capital Allowances for Intellectual assets is a bit of a tongue twister, a bit of a mouthful. But basically what it means is, is that if I buy an asset and that asset allows me to make a profit, I'm allowed to write off the cost of that asset before I pay any profit tax. So again, if you go into business and you set yourself up as a printer and you make a annual you know, profits of 100,000 euros, but you had to produce those with a machine that cost you 50 grand, well, then the argument would be, you can't say that the whole thing is profit. You have to say, actually, the first 50 grand is a cost, the second 50 grand is a profit. So that's fine. Except what happens now increasingly is that we're talking not about tangible assets that have actual market values. We're talking about intangible assets that are produced inside a company and are very, very difficult to get an objective valuation on. So we don't know how much the, these assets are worth, but Apple tell the world that they're worth 300 billion or so. And so Just as Ireland is is having a a formal review of its corporation tax, and that review basically gives Ireland a clean bill of health, they've actually adjusted their tax offering. And you say, why did they do it? Well, I think that's kind of obvious, because if you've developed a tax haven over the course of three decades, uh, well, then you have to be innovative in how you continue to Uh, You know, deploy that tax haven. And as I said at the very start of this question, the key thing is plausible deniability. If you can plausibly deny something, you are okay because you have big, powerful friends in the background. It's when you can't plausibly deny it anymore that you must pivot. And so they they constantly have to tweak, update, you know, adjust, delay, and ultimately then you know be innovative in how they offer their tax uh, uh, incentives or advantages. So that's what happens.
0: Yeah, and I, it's a series of exercises taken by both the firms themselves and, and the big companies in terms of being able to run this all through the state and also on the state's part. Something that stood out to me was, I think you referenced that the official line from the state, Pascal Donoghue, would say that uh, would rely on a series of reports, say a 2014 report, um, which when assessing Ireland's tax status or uh, would rely on official reports which yes might assess Ireland's tax activity but does so on the basis of what you say is declared taxes, knowing that these statistics completely miss the avoid methods and that their report, at least formally, was meant to identify and that this is used as a kind of delay tactic. And in that process, they can develop new avenues to operate out of. We actually had a discussion, uh, me, you and Sammy, last time on the podcast, and we had discussed how there was kind of some movement in Biden's administration in America seeking to put pressure on tax havens like Ireland to change their ways. And you had said that it's very unlikely that... I think you've been proven correctly. We haven't seen the end of it now. And I don't know if do you see any any shifts coming internationally in terms of pressure
1: coming onto Ireland in, in the foreseeable? I don't I don't know really is the answer. I mean, you know, you also have to be a bit humble because the system is very complex and there's a lot of actors with, you know, and they, they they're pushing in broadly the same interests, but they also have their own specific interests. Like, you know, I mean I have read some stuff around the Biden reforms and the 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 most sort of to me um likely reason why they're pushing hard is because in the end, this is what some people say, in the end, if they get 140 countries signed up in the end, it will actually disproportionately benefit the big American companies actually. You know, the way it will be set up is that there will be some doffing of the cap to move into where real activity happens. But of course, a lot of activity happens in America. Like, you know, that's the first thing. And then there will also be a, a sort of a disproportionate emphasis on where intellectual property is presumably being produced. And again, you can often show that that's happening in Silicon Valley or whatever. So, you know... If it's the case that a big American company can get the marginal benefits at the same time as they improve their public relations, well, then they, you know, that some of that might happen. But I, the key thing I think, having looked at it is... But when you look at what the OECD are saying, right? The OECD are making a big fanfare about 100 billion quid from I can't remember as a pillar one, and then 125 billion from pillar two. It's one or the other, but the collective amounts are 225 billion, right? Now, you know that's designed to, to dazzle people because almost everybody has no reference point for saying well, what does that mean in relation to the actual amount of, of of assets that are being sheltered. You know the amount of tax that's being avoided. Now. There's a really good uh, guy in, in in England called Richard Murphy, who has a thing called the tax gap, right? And this is quite a good, innovative way of, of trying to figure out how much is avoided. And what he does, what he argues, I think very persuasively is, if you look at what the company tells its shareholders, right, you get a very good view of what the actual turnover was and what the profits were. Because obviously, capitalist companies have to attract investment. So in a way, they have a duty to really inform people about how much they actually Actually produced, But then when you look at their tax contribution, there's often a big gap and he calls that the tax gap. And on the basis of that, they look and they say that there could be about 16% uh, avoidance or, you know, I'm I'm careful to use the word avoidance because that's about legal. But obviously, you know, my moral sense would be that this is evasion, you know, because if you call it le if it's if you run the law, well then everything is a just avoidance. Because if you're the one who defines what's legal, well then nothing becomes illegal, you know. But the point is to go back to the to the argument, is that you know, they believe that there's something like five percent of the global economy that goes missing every year into the black hole, right? That that's that's about five trillion or four trillion, something like that you know so if you're talking maybe let's even be conservative say 3 trillion 3 trillion versus 100 or 225 billion to, to put that into a ratio you're talking maybe out of 30 quid 2 euros and 25 cent you know so you know it's it's not completely negligible but it's certainly not a game changer and so the point i'd make is even if in the end it turns out to be um you know advantageous to american capitalism Even if, you know, other countries are brought, you know, into line because a lot of it is about sort of, you know, making sure that you're on side with the most powerful uh, capitalist classes, it still won't be a fundamentally fair system and it still won't be a system that eradicates tax evasion and avoidance, uh, I would say.
0: A large part of the book, and this can't be traced obviously here, is how a lot of the problems in Irish society can be traced back to or are made more severe by the tax haven model. And one thing that stands out that you discuss is the ongoing housing crisis and how the tax haven model actually accentuates this and allows or facilitates vulture funds uh, to operate in Ireland. You might just briefly outline that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the things I think that's very important because oftentimes people think about tax and... You know, you could be forgiven for your eyes glazing over a little bit. Like, you know, to me, it's not exactly bedtime reading, is it? You know, tax haven Ireland. Who wants to pick that up? But the point is, though, that people often feel like there's two parallel worlds. You know, there's the the world that they live in and the world that we live in. And you know, people don't like that they avoid their tax, but they often feel like, well, what can we do? Or even, does it really affect me? And of course, what we want to show is is that it absolutely does affect us uh, in ways. And of course, not just in the ways that the state wants you to believe, which is that there are all these jobs being created and so on, but actually often in very damaging ways. So the point about the housing crisis is the following, right? Uh, Okay, first point is Irish capitalism is disproportionately interested in property because, as I said at the start of the interview, over the course of a number of decades, um, property and land... Uh, you know, building and construction, they all seem like the safest, most reliable ways to make profits in Ireland. Uh, you know, land, as PJ Ruddy calls it, I like this phrase, it, it, there's a double monopoly in land, right? So, what he means is uh, if you have land, you're basically You know, nobody can really compete with you. You can't bring in extra land from America and undervalue the price of the existing land. You can't increase the supply. It's limited in supply by its nature, right? And the domestic owners of that land are therefore in a very strong position when international capital comes in. That gets reinforced through the Irish state. There's a reason, for example, why so much of Irish corruption is tied up in things like zoning and rezoning of land and all the rest of it. You know, you go back and look at the man Tribunal uh, and you'll see that there's a whole... A scandal there that's linked to the Irish tax haven you know not explicitly it's often talked about in terms of moral failings and individual politicians and all the rest of it but actually it's the development model of Irish capitalism that's on show in those various tribunals Um, and one of the failings of course of those tribunals is that they didn't say that Uh, You know, with all the resources that they had available to them, they could have traced that out and shown that it was part of a political economy. But, you know, in the end, what they do is they find against individuals. But let's not be, you know, let's be very clear. The findings were very damning. And they said things like the people who were in power were frequently implicated in the very things they were meant to be uh, stamping out. So the point there is that that was ongoing. That was the back, you might call that your background condition, right? So then when the Irish prop went, when the Great Recession comes... The Irish property sector goes under, as we know. That's something we do know. Uh, Ordinary people went into negative equity. Many people lost their homes. People lost their jobs and their homes. It was an absolute disaster. And from that disaster, we were left with uh, an enormous crisis. But... And here's the point, isn't it? Uh, There was a time not very long ago when property prices were very low. There was a time not very long ago when rent was very low. You'd have thought at the very least at the end of that crisis that what you could certainly do is is not uh, have anyone in homelessness, is to clear all your housing lists because everything in the construction was very cheap. They were looking for jobs. Wouldn't it have been the perfect opportunity for the state to say, right, cheap money, lots of builders around looking for work? Uh, Cheap materials, we've got public land. Let's build houses, let's get the housing stock, let's clear the housing list for once and for all. That's what they could have done, but they took the very opposite uh, strategy. What they did instead was they started by saying, Right, let's stop property prices from falling any further. That was the job of NAMA. So NAMA comes in, it stabilizes property prices, and so it Basically, put a floor under property prices by allowing for the biggest, most wealthy, powerful developers in construction to find a home for their assets. That's the first thing. But you see, NAMA couldn't really reflate the assets. You needed a wall of cash to come in to actually get the asset values back up again. And so the Irish state from 2011, after Fine Gael come in, they become very, very clear on what they need to do. As you said earlier on, there's freedom of information requests that show that in the next two years, two or three years, the Department of Finance officials met, and this is a shocking statistic, they met uh, investment funds, mostly from America, on 65 different occasions. Now, why are they meeting these people? Why are department uh, you know, people are meant to run the country in the interest of the population. Why are they meeting vulture funds? What's what's going on? They're meeting them to say, listen, we want your money. Uh, we want you in here. And what we're going to do is give you three advantages. Number one, uh, we've got all these broken banks. If you come in and buy a thousand mortgages, we're going to give you them at the knockdown price. We're going to give you them at like 60% of their, of their market value. Now, of course, if you were you know, a homeowner at the time struggling with your mortgage and someone came to you and said, listen, we'll keep you in your house. All you've got to do for the next four or five years while you're not working is pay 40% of the mortgage. Or, you know, if you've had to take a pay cut, we'll make you, you know, 60% of the mortgage. The point is is that we'll reflect the new market conditions and we'll give you your market, we'll give you your asset for 60% of its market value or 40%. That was never afforded to the the individual owner of the home, but it was afforded to the international funds. That's the first big advantage they got. Second big advantage they got was a whole series of um, property developers and so on who had, you know, inside knowledge and became their partners. So, you know, what you get is you get like partnerships between like sort of defunct Irish developers who then say, well, listen, you know what we know? We know where all the good assets are. We know where all the really good value in Ireland is. You come on in here and we'll partner with you. And the third big advantage is tax. What happens is these companies come in and they establish what are called orphans. You know what an orphan is? Someone who doesn't have parents. And you see, the reason these companies are called orphans is because watch what happens, right? The parent establishes the orphan, which is obviously a contradiction in terms. The parent gives the orphan lots of money. The orphan goes into the Irish economy and buys up lots of property assets. The uh the orphan has all these assets and therefore the orphan starts to make profits but the orphan also has a debt obligation back to who knows who because it's an orphan turns out that the orphan has a debt obligation to itself to its parent company but it's a very complex uh you know back channel and so what happens is you're the owner of a, 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 you know what are called special purpose vehicles a financial vehicle in the international financial service center you make 50 million quid you're just about to pay your tax on that profits. But you then write a letter to the revenue commissioners to say, hang on, we owe a significant sum of money to a, a, you know, a third party because they lent us the money to buy the property in Ireland. Ah, so now you get a tax deduction. And how big is the deduction? Well, it turned out to be more or less exactly what the level of profits were. So, you know, in other words, uh, this was engineered so that there will be no profit tax effectively, right? So, Where then does that? Where? What? How does this impact then on ordinary people? Well, what I would say is, is that uh, this process happened from twenty eleven, but it started to really become clear in about twenty fifteen when prices started to go back up, because what happens is they monopolised, they bought up a lot of the land. You know there are now land banks, banks that you could have, you could have two or three thousand houses on that are not being built on because there's a business model, and the business model isn't build as quickly as possible for human need. It's build as profitably as possible depending on market conditions. And their market conditions are a little bit like the COVID situation. They always want supply to lag behind demand. And so now you have a whole series of key players who are in the market, who have monopolized the land, and who are holding that land. And it's that process that has driven the housing crisis and elongated the the housing crisis for so long. It has kept the housing crisis going. If you think about it, in 2016, six years ago now, more or less, uh, Fine Gael promised with this big fanfare document, you know, Housing for All or Homes for All, whatever it was called, to solve the housing crisis that's a long time ago. You know this argument that we're trying our best has to wear thin at some point. You know, if you go, if you can say that for a hundred years, can you? Oh, we're, we're trying our best. I mean, it doesn't take more than a couple of years to build houses, right? So this is a three card trick, because what actually happens is the state is holding on to its land, because if it builds on its land, it undermines the business model of the companies who want to build on theirs in a drip, drip fashion. And so all of that traces back to the Irish model of capitalism, to the Irish ruling class, to the predominance of property in their portfolios, and to the tax haven in a very specific way, because it was uh, through the international financial services center that many of these vulture funds got their roots into Ireland. So, and that's why people listening are paying higher rents than the average in Europe. That's why there's longer housing lists than there are in Europe. That's why our mortgages are much higher than they are in Europe and why it's very hard to get uh, credit off these banks because they've, first of all, they bust themselves through speculation. And second of all, now, uh, they're linked into this international financial system in a very, um, you know, effective way for themselves but a very, you know, uh, damaging way for the Irish population.
0: I think that's comprehensively laid out in the book. There's a whole chapter on the, the social costs of the tax haven. And that's clear. It's not just to Irish people or to like working people every day when it comes to housing or healthcare, job opportunities, inflation, uh, but also internationally with, you know, the, these profits are being taken by companies and hidden, uh, hidden away and it all only bolsters the power of international capital and further undermines living standards of working people at home and abroad. Just then, last word, I, I suppose, what logically follows on from that is what people can do to, to put their weight behind changing this clearly very bad system. What can people do in this context?
1: Yeah, well, look, I mean, the first thing about the book is it's it's designed to uncover a story that really should have been told before we had to tell it. You know, I mean, this has gone around a long time. And um, the consensus is that Ireland is one of the world's most important tax havens, one of the most strategically important. And it's important to say that we believe and strongly believe that this undermines Irish democracy. If you're living in, in a society where the whole establishment classes refuses to tell the truth to the population that elects them on a systematic basis that's very very damaging for your democracy right so you know on the one hand all of this international consensus has emerged that Ireland is a tax haven yeah uh, these are people that don't have an axe to grind you know they're not benefiting from from it one way or the other are analyzing what's going on and the only people who come out to say Ireland is not a tax haven are insiders who benefit from the tax haven right and so that's one thing Hel- that plays out in real time is that policy gets captured by the elites and so during the crisis people who had no hand nor part in the decisions that crashed the Irish economy they lost their jobs they lost their security they lost their sometimes they lost their homes uh, they certainly lost a lot of hope there's a awful lot of poverty increased inequality increased and yet because the people who crash the economy have the privilege of of basically monopolizing government policy, they come out the other side basically unscathed, right? So there's something deeply unjust about that, that in an economy where, you know, working people build... The infrastructure and build the economy that they're thrown on the scrap heap. Low and middle income workers are thrown under the bus every time a financial crisis comes along. The second point I'd make is, is that you know people are, and you know it's important to be honest. There are hundreds of thousands of foreign direct investment jobs in Ireland. That's the truth, right? That there are jobs there, and it will be very unfair of uh, you know an academic to say, uh, listen, you know, let's not let's discount those jobs because that will be you know deeply unfair to people but on the other hand as an analyst of Irish society you got to ask yourself a more you know let's call it a macro question is it benefiting the majority of people that's the question I would ask and so the comparator there might be somewhere like Denmark or like Finland you know relatively similar sized countries but look at the level of public services we have if you were to say quality of life revolves around your security right your level of public support your you know the fact that you can make ends meet without having to worry about them, the fact that your family will be protected, that they will have decent health care and decent schools. You would think, wouldn't you, that if we're in one of the most important tax havens, that that money would have flowed down to us. We're always told, we're always encouraged to believe that this 12.5% tax has been essential for Irish people to have the quality of life they have. But let's interrogate the quality of life. I would argue that the quality of life in Ireland is actually lower than in many European countries that are not tax havens. So the fair comparator isn't with, oh, what about the jobs? The fair comparator is to say, if we had a different industrial model, would we have a higher standard of living? I think we would, because we wouldn't be captured by financial interests. And so... You look at our pupil-teacher ratios, they're higher than they are in most of Europe. You look at our emissions levels, they're they're higher than in most of Europe. You look at the waiting list for housing, as you, you referenced. You look at the waiting list for an operation in a, in a hospital. You look at the before taxation inequality. We're near the bottom of most European league tables on, on most of what really matters to people. So I would argue that the tax haven model has enriched Maybe 200,000 people It has given a living to another 200,000 people And those 200,000 people in particular Are people I wouldn't want to turn my nose up to Because they're ordinary working people Trying to make ends meet But there are still Another, what, four million people, four and a half million people that you've got to think about. And surely their interests matter as much. And we've got to think about what kind of a society we want down the road. And the other point I'd make, which is a bigger point, is about climate change, about the need for a state that's going to play its part in trying to find a way to knock career off the cliff. Because, you know, if you think about what the Irish government currently does... It currently tries to find ways to make democracy weaker in the face of capitalism, not stronger. You know, the Irish state came out and said, it's great that we have avoided increasing corporation tax on big multinationals by more than 15%. We should have been saying, no, we've lived through six or seven decades of reducing the taxes on corporations. One of the impacts has been a hollowing out of democracy. Another one has been an undermining of our trade unions. Another has been a destruction of our environment. Now we need to reverse those trends. And the the one way you reverse those trends is through democratic accountability. And if we don't have democratic accountability, it's going to be harder for us to see a way to the end of those very, very big existential questions. And so I would argue that even if you think in the short term that the tax haven model is the way to go, it's clearly not the way to go when you look at actual midterm, your children, grandchildren, their children's future, because we need a world that's actually capable of controlling the uncontrolled Uh, you know, almost, uh, you know, unlimited destructive capacity of capitalism to grow without limits. And so I think the book is also making a plea to say, listen, let's not just think about the here and now, let's think about the the future. So for all those reasons, and I should also just say that even uh, in the here and now, it's also worth saying this, you know, we live in a country where, as I said earlier on, about a third of the kids in the country live in consistent poverty. That's not acceptable. That should not be acceptable to anybody in in this country, right? It's not acceptable to to, to your listeners. It's not acceptable to people who are and who support uh, the likes of people before profit, but but it shouldn't be acceptable to anybody. It just shouldn't be acceptable in this country that you're born and that you've got to live a life that's in consistent poverty. But then you go and you look at the, the impact of tax havens on an international scale. And it's, it's, it's absolutely barbaric. You're talking about, on a conservative estimate, about five or six million children every year dying because they're being denied the access to basic food uh, water, shelter, because tax havens are sucking profits out of their countries without paying the legitimate tax they should pay. Hundreds of millions of kids are not getting their education. And so if we have a moral compass that says the big war criminals of the 20th century were uh, people who we should, um, you know, rightly denounce, we should also denounce those people who who systematically organize this form of destruction of human life and potential. So for all those reasons, I think people should, um, you know, hopefully read the book, and should draw the conclusion which we have, which is that it has no future supporting this form of capitalism. We need a much more progressive uh, society and economy.
0: Thanks, Brian. I think that's a very clear note to end on. And and something we'd be clear about is about people getting active. But a, a part of that fight back is is certainly arming yourself with the knowledge of what's wrong in in order to rectify it, and i think this is a fantastic book in in outlining those problems which i would highly recommend and i commend both you and karen allen on the work i think it's great as mentioned in the intro the book can be found in the episode description along with uh, links to where people can find your work if you want to send them on to me so uh, i'll just leave it there and say thanks a million for for coming on brian much appreciated.
1: thanks very much appreciate your time cheers